0: We're going to be finishing the book of James this morning. I'm going to mention um, as we go through the sermon, the, the issue of prayer will come up, topic of prayer will come up through the study. And so I just wanted to mention that um, Crossway Books sent us a, a, a case of Donald Whitney's book, Praying the Bible. Um, sometimes when it comes to your prayer life, it's just not knowing Feeling like you know how to pray, or looking for just a, a simple model, and praying Scripture is super helpful. And Whitney's always just a very accessible writer, very, um, very helpful, very thoughtful. Um, so there are a number of these out by the welcome desk. You can just go and help yourself, or ask somebody behind the welcome desk if you'd like to take a copy. They are free. So if you're going to use it, read it. Please do so. Um, one. Per family at, at at best. If you're not going to going to read it, just leave it for somebody else. I, I I know what it's like to collect books that that go unread for a while, um, but they're there and they're there for the taking. So, somebody over on this side who knows they already want one before I just leave it up here and it goes. I see you, brother. You. This is like The Price is Right or one of those shows or something. But there you go. All right, all right. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper after the sermon this morning. We are going to partake together in communion and. Scripture speaks about communion as something that we do as believers to remember and to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. We are thinking on what Jesus Christ did on our behalf when he died for our sins. But also in that practice of communion, it is something that we do corporately. We do it together because that's how it's modeled throughout the New Testament. Now, there are, there are rare instances, and I've done this as, as an elder where you, somebody is infirmed, somebody's not able to get out, um, and, and so we will sometimes do a, like a private sort of communion service, but that's really the exception because the, the model throughout the New Testament is believers gathered for communion. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of them coming together. Acts chapter 2 talks about how they gathered for fellowship, prayer, Teaching of the word and the breaking of the bread. And so it is this corporate activity. And the the, the nature of communion is that it reminds us all that we all came to this place in Jesus Christ on the same level ground. We we came as sinners in need of salvation, in need of being rescued by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody brings higher merit than any others, that, that can make any other claim. And so you needed Christ to die for your sins just as much as the person next to you did. And in communion, one of the things we're, we're recognizing is, is our corporate life, the fact that we all share in common rescue from our sins, rescue from the punishment for our sins by the death of Jesus Christ. And so this community aspect of the Lord's Supper is one of the reasons why the the passage that we often look at when we come to communion, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, isn't simply intended to instruct about communion. It's really the context is Paul chastising believers in Corinth for abusing communion. They are, instead of coming together as a unified body, some are eating and others are being left outside, and there is just disunity represented even in the celebration of communion, and so Paul writes to tell them that they are facing judgment for their sin, and he warns them against being flippant about this sort of sin and disregarding others. And he says near the end of his instruction, so then, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. He's stressing the very corporate nature of that gathering for the Lord's Supper and the need for them to be together. And so the act of communion is a display of our fellowship, of who we are in Christ together. In this book of James that we have studied this summer and that we're finishing this morning, we've seen James speak to a a number of areas of disunity, a, a number of potentials for conflict within the body, for division within the body. And so we've seen him speak to the rich to not look down on the poor. We've seen him challenge the body to not ignore those who are in need, to not ignore widows and orphans, but go to them. He commands Christians against the sin of partiality, the sin of judging others by superficial means, by the color of their skin, by their, their ethnic background, whatever it might be. And he condemns that He confronts our tendency to use our words in unloving ways and to offend people by the things that we say. And James also warns that when we are left to our own ways, to our own devices, we we can be very selfish. We can move toward um, jealousy and selfish ambition, as he described it. We can move toward me, myself, and I. And that's why this book, really, as we've said from the beginning, is all about street-level faith. It's about the temptations you and I face on a daily basis to want to pull back, to want to isolate, to want to please self, and to be angry at anyone who would get in my way of fulfilling my own desires. So as James ends this letter, there's just a little bit more instruction here to believers about our communion together as a body, uh, of of building bonds that strengthen us. We've seen the, the do nots. Uh, no partiality, no speaking against, no grumbling against, all of those. No ignoring brothers and sisters and needs. To use Paul's language, those would be put-offs. These are the things you are to stop doing, to put-off. But Paul also teaches put-ons. And so what is it that we put in place of those? What, what can we do proactively as believers, to strengthen our bonds in Christ, to grow the unity that we should have by, by the very spiritual reality that we have all been saved. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ here this morning, you've been brought into this body by a work that should unify you with your brothers and sisters. So how do we live that out? James chapter 5 is where we are. As James has done before, he is going to spotlight the tongue. He has, in virtually every chapter of James, has spoken to our words, the things that we say, except for the possible exception of chapter 2, is probably the only chapter in James that doesn't specifically address a particular area of speech. Over and over again, James has reminded us that we use our words and they will either draw together or they will divide. Depending on what we say and how we say it, our words have a powerful effect. And so here at the end of the book of James, he gives us, I, I, I see here, I think, four qualities that should characterize our communication with our brothers and sisters, and I'll, I'll put them under these four words. Our communication must be truthful, it must be prayerful, it must be humble, and then fourth, it must be accountable. We start with truthful. James 5, verse 12 is where I'm picking up, and we'll just read verse 12. It says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath... But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Being a good student of the Bible, you see that word but, and you think, "What is that? How does that connect me back? How does that force me to look back?" We talked about the passage last week. That's talking to believers about being steadfast during suffering, and so we tend to think, "But this must mean some contrast to that." The little Greek particle that he uses there could also be translated as now or also. And that's probably. Better, the, the phrase, actually, that James, when he writes it in the Greek, starts, above all, now, also. That's really what he's trying to say there. It's not a contrast to what goes before. It's sort of leading into a summary statement. So James, at this point, is basically introducing the last part of his letter and saying, finally, of greatest importance, brothers and sisters, is this. I want you to hear this. And what he follows that up with is, don't swear oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is another time in the book of James when, as you're reading it, your mind might say, I've read this before. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's another one of those times when James is is giving us sort of a, a smaller, abbreviated version of something that Jesus taught. So, Matthew 5, verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus, when he speaks this, says, the law said, he's referring back to Leviticus chapter 19, and he says, the law did not forbid you from swearing oaths. What it said is, if you do so, you better keep it. You better not swear falsely and say, I'll do this when you know that chances are slim that you're actually going to do that. But Jesus now says, I say to you, just don't swear by heaven or by earth or take any other oath. So what you've got is God's law saying that it's not banning the swearing of oaths, but you do have Jesus and now James Referring back to Jesus, telling a follower of Jesus Christ, here's the thing, you may or may not use an oath, but your speech must always be characterized by truthfulness. You should have no need of an oath because people should know that when you speak, you are speaking truth. If you are going to be a, a doer of the word and not a hearer only, then people should know that by the, the, the veracity of your words, that you are a trustworthy person, that you will do what you say you are going to do, that you will commit to what you are committed to. And so uh, th- there may be instances when you may need to take an oath, a, a testimony in court or a military enlistment oath. And so there may be situations where some oath is required. But what James is talking about here is the ordinary pattern of everyday Christian speech there should never be an instance when we should feel like we have to say, I swear this is true. I swear to God that this is what happened, or I, I swear on my mother's grave. I n- never understood what that one was supposed to, like, <laughs> prove. But what he's saying is if, if, that's your, if that's your go-to, then you're leaving people to think, what about the rest of the time? If this time I am swearing that this is true, does that now leave sort of an opening that the rest of what I say may or may not? I may fudge on the rest, but I swear on this part. And so the the, the teaching here is that our integrity is to be evidenced by our words. Simple. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be a person who, who shades the truth. Don't be somebody who exaggerates in order to get an advantage or who, who doesn't tell the full story and speaks in half-truths to avoid consequences. I'll tell you just enough so I can feel like I, I was truthful, but I won't tell you everything because I really don't want to get in trouble with you. This is, this is not a requirement to speak Every single thought that you have about the person to whom you're speaking. The culture would probably call that oversharing. And that's not what this is demanding, that that every single thought, because not every single thought is edifying. But the the flip of that is don't hold something back or speak and have truths simply to protect yourself from consequences. If you know that you are not sharing what's on your mind at that point, primarily because you don't want to get a response that's going to be negative, then that's when the call here is be truthful, speak in truthful ways. By the way, I say this lastly, just about this first one of, of being truthful. I, I, I don't think this order here at the end of James is random, that these four things, truthful, prayerful, humble, and accountable, are just sort of randomly in order. Th- this is the first one because this is the simplest and most straightforward one, and it sort of governs the rest. If, if your yes isn't yes and your no isn't no, then how can I even trust when you say, oh, I'll pray for you this week. Well, maybe you will, maybe you won't, but, but being truthful is sort of the foundational statement up front. All right, let me read on. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let me pause there. Our communication is to be truthful. Second, it is to be prayerful. These verses that I just read, this is one of those sections here, and there's a couple of these at the end of James, where it's easy for us to get caught up in the details and to miss the main point. We start asking questions right away about what, what is this calling of the elders and anointing with oil and prayer of faith and sins being forgiven, and, and, and we lose the, the, the whole main point that Scripture seeking to communicate. So let's just talk about some of those lesser points first, just to to, to try to be clear on those. This is actually a passage that the Roman Catholic Church uses to teach what it calls extreme unction or last rites, the idea that a person who is dying, the priest is called, and he prays over that person and anoints them, and it's sort of a preparatory step, uh, a sacrament, as, as the Roman Catholic Church would call it, before that person dies. There is nothing, nothing in the text to support the idea that a person's status before God is in any way affected, changed, diminished, or uplifted by virtue of someone coming and praying over them and anointing them with oil. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your savior, you are prepared to stand in the presence of your creator. You are prepared to die. That doesn't mean there's not emotion and all that goes with that. I don't mean to try to make death sound just simple, clean cut, but but there is not a, a process being taught here That that this is actually saying, pray for healing. This is a person who is sick, and the the aim here is to pray for healing. So what does he mean then when he says, call the elders who anoint with oil? A lot of conjecture then about the the purpose of the oil. Let's be clear about this part. There's nothing special. There's nothing magical about the oil. There's nothing sacred. This isn't the the elders go into the special cabinet and pull down the, the special supernatural consecrated oil. The healer is God. The the prayer is to God to do the healing. And so we can rule out that there's anything sort of supernatural, if you will, in the oil. Mark 6, 12 and 13, Jesus sends out his disciples to do ministry. It says, they went out, proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So there is this practice of of anointing them, and it brings us back then to the question of what does it mean, and Scripture doesn't say specifically what it has in mind. The oil may have had some medicinal value. There's certainly historic writings that tell us about application of oil, that it it, it was used in a medicinal way in some cases. But I would say to you, remember the context. James here is talking about how the, the body functions together how we pray for one another how we do things and we are truthful to one another and so there's a corporateness to this now with that in mind what does sickness often do in a community what's the reaction to sickness and you don't have to think hard about this one just think about the last couple of years think about the last time you were in a crowded place and somebody sneezed and what was the reaction Everybody's kind of like, oh no, yeah, this is, this is not good, right? We, we move away, we isolate. I've, I've had a cough for the last two weeks, so I have become, I have had more times say, I, I took a home test, I'm, I'm negative, I'm, I'm okay. But that's our propensity is to, to move away, sickness separates. And, and verse 14 is the first time in the book of James that he uses the word ecclesia which our versions translate as the church. Is anyone among you, let him call for the elders of the church. First time that he uses that term for the the called out ones, the gathered together ones, the the, the body, the assembly. Summon the elders of the church when one is sick. Bring the body to the person. He is calling believers again. This goes back to what I said to you since chapter 3, Be different from worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom separates and isolates God's wisdom. The wisdom that is from above moves toward and it it, it seeks to serve and come alongside. And so when he's directing the elders, they come now representing the church and they they touch that person, they anoint that person with oil, they pray over that person. He even uses sort of proximity when he speaks of praying. Doesn't say merely pray with that person, but there's actually relationship and proximity and communion that's going on in this instance. One commentator put it this way. In the elders, the ecclesia is to respond to the weak member and overcome the alienation and inertia with which sickness threatens the life of the group. This is the church moving toward the believer who is sick and caring for that person and praying for that person. So that's what we're talking about when we look at the elders and the anointing with oil. But the central message, really, that that James is seeking to communicate in this passage is that at all times... We should be prayerful. Our speech should be characterized by prayerfulness. Is anyone among you sick? Pray for that one. Is anyone among you cheerful? Praise God with that one. If one needs help and is sick, then then go to that one who is suffering. Pray together. We're going to come back to the humble confession that you see in verse 16 when he says, confess your sins to one another, but I want you to catch the next part of that, which says, and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is not just individual praying. This is a call to the body and praying for one another, seeing that our speech, our communion should be filled with prayer for each other. I say this often in, in, in marriage counseling because it's an area that for many of us, even as, as Christian couples, we can struggle with, and that is the need for you to make time to pray with your spouse or to pray with your children or to have other people that you pray with. You need, you need to hear your spouse pleading to God on your behalf, and you need to let them hear that as well, and your children need to hear that. We, we need to pray for one another, and that's something we do corporately. We do also as a community. We don't need eloquent, long, carefully manuscripted sort of prayers. Talk to your Father in heaven. Your brother or sister is in need, and, and, and let them hear you plead for God to give wisdom to that brother or sister, to help them as they try to think about the situation, to help them stand steadfast through this. Let them hear you praying for them. So, so here's an idea after the service, after we've had communion, when when we're done, I want to encourage you today to turn to someone who is nearby, not a family member, that's cheating, turn to somebody who is nearby and say, how can I pray for you this week? Give Give me something to pray for, give me something to praise for, maybe things are just, God is just blessing and you just want me to give praise for something. If you don't know the person, introduce yourself, ask their name, And just say, how can I pray for you? And if it works, pray right on the spot. If you're like me, if you don't write it down, it gets lost. So either write it down and do it, let your yes be yes, right? Or pray on the spot. Now, if your immediate reaction to this is, I wonder which is the last song, because I think I'm going to duck out during the last song. Please let me challenge you. This is urging us to community. It's not trying to embarrass us. It's not trying to put us in awkward places. It's saying that as believers, we need to be doing this. We need to be hearing one another pray for one another, and that's part of life in the body. I'll say this lastly, just about some of the details in this section. James is not guaranteeing when he says, he speaks of the prayer of faith in verse 16, will save the one who is sick. There is no guarantee here, and this sometimes gets used for that, that If you are sick and you have enough faith, your prayer will heal you. And therefore, if you didn't get healed, the person who prayed for you or you did not have enough faith. There's enough scriptural evidence to refute that. I'll give you two brief examples. The one is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he has the thorn in the flesh and pleads with God three times. Here is a man who is is spending his life in service to the Lord, pleading for healing of some sort. We don't know exactly what. And God says... No, you're going to continue to experience this because that thorn is what's going to allow you to feel my strength. Your weakness will let my strength flow through you even better, so there is purpose here in your sickness. Paul then to Timothy, speaks to Timothy of his stomach ailments, and he doesn't say to Timothy, hey, we just need to have more faith that God will take these stomach ailments away. He says, take a little wine for your stomach. There's an understanding that you may have to live with this, Timothy, and and, and, and so... Treat it well. Take it seriously. It, it, go ahead and use medicine, if need be. That's a common grace that God has provided. So I, I, I don't want us to see this as some sort of Loctite tight guarantee, but I don't want us to minimize this either because when he says, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, it is a reminder that believing prayer is effective in healing. And we ought not dismiss it either. We ought not swing the pendulum so far because we get nervous on this side that we believe that we shouldn't pray this way because that's what he's calling us to do is to pray for healing and that God, when God sovereignly heals, is using the believer's praying as part of that in some way. That's what he's calling us to. Uh, Whenever there is healing... It is the Lord who has done it. It's not some so-called healer or or miracle worker. It is God who is the healer. And if there's one lesson we should take from this, it is that when one is sick, the body should pray. It's it's not wrong to pray for healing. It's absolutely described here in scripture as something we should do and plead with God that he might raise this person up. Now, here's the the last thing that we'll say about this and that's all of those, all of you, who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, regardless of the outcome of physical sickness that you may experience, will ultimately be raised up. He is speaking absolute truth when he says here the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. We will all be raised If we live long enough, or if Jesus doesn't return before we do, we will be raised up on the last day. Here's one scholar on this. The Lord raises up all the sick who believe in him, some in this life, some for eternal life. The Lord will heal all his people sooner or later. Some rise from sickness in this life. After prayer by the elders, others rise bodily only on the last day when the Lord raises the dead. Since he determines when he heals, we should not blame sick believers for their lack of faith. Amen. So the... He finishes on this prayer passage by bringing in Elijah. Let me just read these verses so that we have these. At the end of verse 16, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This, that last piece of verse 16, the, the, the prayer of the righteous man, um, has, has this effect There's another one of those instances where I think we can somehow get bogged down in details and miss the overall point. He brings Elijah in as an example of what he's saying. And Elijah shows us a man who is praying for God to demonstrate his power as being the one supreme God over and against all of the idols that are being worshiped at that time in the nation of Israel. And so Elijah is praying, Lord. Lord, just bring them drought for an extended period of time so that they will know that you are God. And God does. Now, does that make Elijah a superhero of the faith? No, because look look at what James says about him. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man who was just like you and I. Elijah was a sinner who was who was prone to weakness, we, we, we know he struggled at one point with despair, even after seeing God's hand at work, Elijah was just an ordinary guy who trusted in a great God and who prayed to that God. And so th- this is not a call here when it speaks of, at the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Righteous, in verse 16, does not set apart some class of super-Christians, who get more answers to their prayer than you do. We are all righteous in the sense that we are made righteous by virtue of trust in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are set apart and given that right standing before God. The message is pray. One who has this relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, pray, just like Elijah did. Pray and trust God. Pray in all things. Be truthful, be prayerful. Third, be humble. This goes back to that statement in verse 16 at the beginning when it says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Again, one of these statements in James where we can sort of get hung up as to what does this mean? What does confess your sins to one another look like? This is not James inventing a new practice of calling everybody together. Okay, body, it's time to come together. It's confession night, Yay, we're all going to come together, bring your sins, here's the mic, it's your turn to confess. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> and, and listen, flip side of that again. I've I, I just been reading, and I'll quote from it later, John Stott's book on confession, and he will point out that during a lot of different unique movements of the Holy Spirit where there was revival, there was a great deal of confessing, public confessing of sin. So it's not extraordinary in that sense. Works of God have happened where that's taken place. But that's not what James is saying, that this needs to be something unusual. This goes back to, because it's got therefore, it goes back to the phrase before it. And if, if that person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If that person who has battled with sickness has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James Clear about this. James allows that there is some sickness that is caused by sin. Not all sickness is caused by sin. We, we know that from examples, even of Jesus speaking, that, that this man born blind, this was for the glory of God, that the, the power of God might be demonstrated in him. And so we, we don't want to make a link here that James is not making. Some sickness, though, is connected to sin. Uh, We know that from the communion passage I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and and the warning that because of the behavior toward communion and the disunity, it it says in that passage, some are sick and some even sleep as a result. There is is actual physical sickness, even death, coming in the midst of the Corinthian congregation, not just because they're sinning, but because they're doing so stubbornly and unrepentantly and carrying on in their sin and, and flaunting it as they come to the Lord's table. As believers today, we, we don't have the authority of apostles, and we should be very cautious about speaking with certainty about works of God unless we are speaking that this is what the word of the Lord says. So when we see current events or we see sickness, we need to be really careful about saying this is because of that. This is somehow related to that. We, we are flawed, and, and we, can, we can apply biblical principles, and we can certainly in disaster situations say this is an opportunity to call on the God of heaven, And and, and God may be working through all of this. He's certainly sovereign over all of this, but but we need to be careful about drawing that connection too tightly. But certainly, as James indicates here, he may be using sickness. And, and, And it's something we should consider as the one who is sick. Is this a way that God is dealing with arrogance in me or dealing with something in me? Is this a way that God is seeking to to teach me something else? And maybe there's sin to confess. And James 5.15 is just wonderfully encouraging when it says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The idea that God forgives sinners who humbly come before him as the body comes and prays for that one. So verse 16 is the follow-on to that. If that same person who may have faced sickness on account of sin, if that person is forgiven by God, if that same person their sin has offended others, has been against another person, they should confess that sin. That's really what he's he's encouraging us toward here. If you've sinned against someone, confess that to them. All sin is first and foremost against God. That's our starting point in terms of confession is, is praying before God against you, Lord, have I sinned. But if our sin has been against another person, we need to go to him or her. and and, and acknowledge that what we've said or done was wrong and ask for their forgiveness. Confess and ask for forgiveness. Confessing sin should be as normal a part of the Christian life as fellowship is for us. We're we're always eager for fellowship. We get to spend time together and eat together and talk together. But confession of sin is just another part of, of being in a community. And so it's something we should we should be eager to do, not in the sense that we should desire to sin so we can then do confession, but we should be eager to be a confessing people who want to reconcile, who want to make things right. Here's the John Stott quote I mentioned earlier. We are not in the least ashamed of the fact that we think and talk a lot about sin. We do so for the simple reason that we are realists. Sin is an ugly fact. It's neither to be ignored nor ridiculed, but honestly faced. Indeed, Christianity is the only religion in the world which takes sin seriously and offers a satisfactory remedy for it. And the way to enjoy this remedy is not to deny the disease, but to confess it. Christians should eagerly embrace confession. The acknowledgement of our sins because that is the the means our Savior has provided for reconciliation, that we would be a people who would repent and turn from our sin and trust in Him. And, and, And this instruction on confession, especially as he ties it back to what he's just said about sickness and healing, should tell us that confession and forgiveness are at least as wonderful as physical healing. We, we love testimonies of, of physical healing when God raises someone up and we rejoice at those. We should similarly delight when, when God takes somebody who's being wayward in their sin and they acknowledge their sin and confess and repent and, and are forgiven. That is an opportunity to delight in his work. And as a community, we should rejoice in that. Humility draws us together. Humility in our speech, acknowledging wrongdoing, paves the way for the community to live in that kind of peace that he's described when he speaks of godly wisdom in chapter three. Last section, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Be truthful, prayerful, humble, and forth. As we build community together, be accountable. Again, think about the context, James talking to the community, community of sinners, who have been saved by grace and recognizing that sin always threatens community. Sin always has the potential to be divisive and and, and to create rupture in harmony. That's why confession and reconciliation are so vital. And so into that, James makes the point that one of the most important things we can do for one another when it comes to sin is to help each other, which means having the, the willingness to speak the truth to another, but conversely, it means having the willingness and the desire to hear when somebody speaks to me. This is where the accountable part comes in. I'm essentially flipping these verses to the hearer side of this and not being the kind of person who dismisses somebody coming to you lovingly, wanting to correct you. Says, I know that. I don't need to hear this. Don't, you don't need to talk to me. I got it. I got it. Listen, this. he's trying to describe here the one who comes to a wandering person who professes faith in Christ and they're wandering from the truth, they're doing a wonderful thing. Be accountable, be joyful at the fact that they love you enough to come to you. You you and I should desire brothers and sisters who would gladly engage and say, ah, this, you're wandering here, you're straying here, this is not good, you can't persist in this. Since the start of this letter, James has been confronting spiritual wandering under the the, the language often of the the double-minded person, the the one who professes faith in Christ, but in chapter one, who then starts to doubt Christ, who says, I need wisdom, but I I doubt God's really got any for me in this. The person who professes faith in Christ and who starts to blame shift his sin. Uh, God is tempting me. It's God's fault that I'm sinning. All all of these instances of double-mindedness, the one who says he loves Christ, Claims faith, but then the life doesn't have works that demonstrate that faith. The one who follows worldly wisdom and is filled with strife and disunity. James is is constantly calling against this kind of double-mindedness, and it's in the light of this that James now says to his audience that there is a a need in in the community for mutual correction, for, for lovingly walking with each other and helping each other. The local church is not a place for moral superiority and looking down on people who struggle with sin. It is a place for coming alongside and walking with each other and helping each other. This is a community where we all should realize the danger of self-deception. The fact that I may, I may be certain I'm right, and I need a brother to come alongside and go, have you thought about it this way? That what you said and how you said it, and maybe you were possibly right in what you said, but the manner in which you said it was completely unhelpful, if not super critical. Well, okay, maybe I needed to hear that. We need brothers and sisters to do that. Verse 19 really makes it clear that there is a pathway of truth, because he says, if any any among you wanders from the truth, again, Call you back to chapter three. There is wisdom that is from above. There is God's design to help us interpret life, to help us walk in obedience to him. And, and the point here is that when you see a brother or sister who's being lured by the billboard sign on the side of the road towards some other temptation, you're not going to watch them walk that way and just let them go. You're going to come alongside and say, don't, don't do that. Don't go in this direction. Church is to be different. Commentator writes this, just as in the case of sickness, sin within the community has the effect of making the community recoil in self-defense. The sinner becomes increasingly isolated and increasingly alienated. To reach out with the word of truth is to save the other. Friends, it, it is only fitting that we would finish James and now gather around the Lord's Supper together as an opportunity for us to recollect the fact that we are here celebrating this because of what Jesus Christ did. We all come on the same ground by virtue of the work of the the same savior. If If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you, I would urge that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, the son of God, and he died on the cross to take upon himself the punishment we deserve for our sin. And he bore that to the point of death on the cross, but then he was raised victoriously to show his defeat of sin and its curse and to show that there is eternal life for all who will trust in him. And if you will trust in him, you will find forgiveness and hope and life. As we gather at the Lord's Supper now, we come with the remembrance, the warning to examine ourselves, to humbly see our sin, the call to address matters that need reconciliation. We often remind you as we come to the Lord's Supper, preparing for the Lord's Supper, sometimes that means going and talking to a brother or sister, bringing about confession and reconciliation. May God help us. We live in a world with ever-present temptations to pull us apart and pull us isolated towards sin. James and Scripture is calling us now to, to be truthful. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be prayerful. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. And be thankful if you have brothers or sisters who are willing to come alongside and call you back from your wandering. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the design of community, for the, the design of the church, of the ecclesia, that you would, in saving us, not pull us off to the side to merely live as individuals, but that by saving us, by your Spirit, you draw us into a body into a place where we function and live and struggle and suffer and rejoice side by side with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us to lovingly speak the truth to be a people whose whose speech is representative of integrity that is from you. That means what it says and and strives to be obedient to you and what we say. Help us to be prayerful, to to know those around us and be praising you for them and praying for their week ahead. Help us to be humble, to know that we all sin. And in confession of sin, there is a sweet opportunity to, to hear words of forgiveness, encouragement and affirmation from you through the body. And help us to be accountable, to to live differently from a world that would simply throw rocks at problem people or move away from them. Help us to be ones who embrace correction, who long to have it from others around us. We pray all these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.